Hello listeners, I am David Blakesley and this is Criterion Reflections, episode 117, in which uh, Richard Doyle and I are going to talk about a couple films, uh, kind of genre flicks from 1972, or actually from the tail end of May 1972. So yes, we are slowly <laughs> crawling our way through the films of 1972, the Criterion Collections affiliated films of that year, and we're finally coming to the end of May. So we've still got, uh, what? seven more months to go <laughs> of covering that uh, eventful year in cinema. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to introduce the films in just a second. But Richard, I want to just thank you for joining me for this conversation. Uh, how's it going for you tonight? Oh, it's going fine. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I uh, was curious about both films. So Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's tell listeners what we're in for. You probably already read it on your podcast feed or the website or wherever you learn about this. But we are going to be talking about uh, two films that really, uh, again, have that kind of tangential relationship with the Criterion Collection. But I think both offer some interesting food for conversation. Uh, ZPG uh, stands for Zero Population Growth. This is a kind of a dystopian science fiction film uh, directed by one Michael Campus. Maybe I'll have a few things to say about him in a minute. Stars Oliver Reed and Geraldine Chaplin. So that's kind of an interesting casting there. Uh, and then the other film we're going to talk about was uh, kind of a somewhat obscure title by George Romero that was originally released as Hungry Wives. And we'll talk a little bit about how it got that title. Um, was probably better remembered nowadays by the name Season of the Witch, which was uh, the title assigned to it after the film was re-released after kind of flopping on its opening run there. So uh, a little bit of sci-fi and I guess what you would call sort of eerie psychological horror, although it's not really too horrific, but it does involve witchcraft and, and the occult. So I guess that's a... Romero branching out a little bit from the zombie films that he's most famous for. So, Richard, yeah, you said you were curious about these films. Um, these are not what I'm going to call fine cinema. We may keep the conversation clipping along. This might be a fairly brief-ish episode, even though we're talking about two movies. But uh, tell me what prompted your curiosity to get involved in this conversation. I, I should say I, I'd seen Season of the Witch before, but... Um like a long time ago. Uh, ZPG, I keep wanting to call it ZPG because I'm Canadian. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. Feel free, you know. Yeah. I want to be multinational and all that. Uh, I, I had never seen this one, but I'm a, I'm very very fond of science fiction that sort of falls in between 2001 and Star Wars. 
Yes, exactly. Love it. Right. Yeah. Where, where science fiction was very, even cheap science fiction like this one was very serious and stately and mm-hmm. paced and very literary in ways. Yeah. And this was one I'd never seen. Um, I'd, I'd heard about, about it and I was impressed by the cast, but uh, I was like, oh, I, this is a good opportunity to watch this one. Well, and you would think that with that cast, you know, it would have made a little bit more of an impact. And yeah, because you're right, I've been a fan of that kind of interim science fiction, uh, you know, genre films from when I was a kid. I when I used to watch, you know, kind of creature features, and I was a big fan of things like the Planet of the Apes and Logan's Run and Silent Running. I mean, I saw all those films as a, as a kid. You know, maybe not in their very first original run, but pretty soon after. And uh, was always on the lookout for that type of thing because I'm in the same boat. I, I really like that sort of speculative um, before the special effects took over and before it became, you know, soap operas in space or adventure movies in space. It was really more kind of cerebral, that that kind of classic science fiction style of projecting into the future certain things that were happening in today's world. And if this trend continues unchecked, what will life be like, you know? <laughs> and and as the as the title implies, zero population growth uh, was uh, kind of a, a meditation, if you will, on the anxiety that was expressed at the time about you know, too many people, uh, too many people. I mean, that's like the opening track of Paul McCartney's Ram album and uh, was released right around this time. Uh, so the idea of overpopulation, that there would just be more people than the uh, earth and food supplies and living conditions could put up with seemed to have some traction. Uh, you know, what are your what are your thoughts just about the concept and, and uh, uh, just this whole idea that, uh, you know, the world's going to just be overrun with people and uh, there's just not going to be enough room for everybody. It's was prompted by that book, The Population Bomb, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I think that, yep. that came out yep. just a few years before this. And mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a big topic at the time. If you like better known film, Soylent Green kind of deals with the same mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. issue. It's funny that they, people's projections seem to have been wrong about it. I think <laughs> yeah. they didn't take into account how much the birth rates were going to decline naturally in the first world. But. Right. And the fact is, the Earth has a lot of surface. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there, really, there really is no need for humanity to be just crushed piling on top of each other uh, the way it's depicted uh, somewhat amateurishly in this film. Yes. We'll talk a little bit about the production values and all of that in a minute. But uh, how this got into the Criterion Collection, this was part of the Criterion Channel's uh, 70s sci-fi bundle that was, um, to me at least, very memorably released in January of 2020. Uh, I did an episode on three of the films that were in that bundle from 1971. Uh, THX 1138, of course, the feature debut for George Lucas. Uh, the Omega Man, starting Charlton Heston, uh, which was based on the, what was that movie? Um, I am uh, Legend. I am Legend, right, which uh, you know was remade years later, starring Will Smith. But a pretty classic science fiction tale about the last kind of normal man on Earth. Most of humanity's been turned into kind of you know mindless zombie type creatures, and he's got to fight for survival. So it's kind of an epic sci-fi action, uh, you know, drama with Charlton Heston doing his thing. And then the third one was Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. And now we crammed all three of those films into one episode. It was a very fun and uh, lively conversation. I really enjoyed making that one. And 
I would have to say we maybe gave clockwork at least short shrift because we had to move through it so quickly, but that's a pretty major film, but it was, it was a good conversation and that was right before COVID hit. And all of a sudden here we are a couple months later after that episode, living in a real life dystopia <laughs> from which we have yet to finally emerge. Uh, so this was a 1972 film, so we didn't really cover that. Uh, but that's basically where this one got its criterion collection uh, connection. They, they just, packaged a whole bunch of 70s sci-fi so that that bundle fairly short-lived on the channel was full of these types of movies that you know richard and i have been kind of referencing those kind of um you know there's there's some effort at special effects but it's got that sort of seriousness middle brow uh, aspect to it of, of really trying to you know seriously engage with some ominous portents of what's happening in society and this one here kind of really zeroes in on the population explosion so-called and the uh, and the difficulties of living in a world that's overcrowded polluted and uh, apparently under the uh, the control of a despotic government that will take the most brutal steps to try to wrangle this you know uncontrollable mass of humanity from reproducing ever again or at least for the next 30 years <laughs> so richard what do, what do you think about the the basic premise of this film uh it's it's kind of thrown at us right out the gate there yeah uh the plot is not one of the things i liked about this film <laughs> no no it was it was really i mean there's so many different directions they could have gone but they really they really yeah. narrowed the scope very quickly as far as what the central tension was all about and it's not very plausible, right? I mean, if, <laughs> right. You, if you grant that uh, population has run out of control, okay, I'll, I'll accept that. But I'm not sure that going completely outlawing births is, would be a plausible answer. Like, that's not even zero population growth. That's wildly negative. Yeah. <laughs> and e even if I accepted that they that measure would be okay, the way in which they go about enforcing it is ridiculous. <laughs> like, well, well there, yeah, yeah. There are so many things you could think they could do, like, I don't know, issue contraception. But sure, it, it's right. more or less just up to everyone's honor system. To... I guess the, the the apartments have some kind of an abortion machine of yeah. some, yeah, something. So when a couple, when, you know, they're not saying you can't have sex, right? You can't have, you know, activities that might result in procreation. But if you conceive or, or pretty much after you have sex, there's some process you're supposed to go through to guarantee that the woman doesn't become pregnant. And, uh, and yet... Again, you're right. If with the enforcement, uh, they could do forced sterilization. They could do forced contraception, and but she's basically just decides she's not going to use the machine, and voila, she's, she's pregnant. <laughs> and nobody, nobody checks. Like there's no medical <laughs> checkups or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and and also just the way the uh, social control is exerted is is again, it's kind of goofy. I mean, I guess if you're this, probably could do a pretty be a pretty good uh mystery science theater episode if they wanted to go that route and maybe they did I, I've, I've enjoyed that series but i've never been a fanatical follower but uh you know all all of the elements are there to make ruthless mockery of this film because the the government's control is exerted by these little kind of floating orbs they just kind of um apparently float around in the in the smog infested skies 
blaring out their commands to to the populace and and the <laughs> how about that opening announcement from the the world dictator <laughs> like everybody uh, the world council has met and now we have decided that no more babies shall be born and the crowd is like uh, they're masked no <laughs> 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 floating clothes. That's right, and and they're out there. Like I say, there's a, this is a very studio bound movie. Um, they're walking around in this perpetual fog. Like there's there's fog machines just off camera, just belching out <laughs> the clouds of smoke. They're walking around in these kind of bodysuit uniforms with these little plastic shields over their face. So you can still see their face, but they they almost look like uh, plasticized dolls themselves. And the solution also to, to satisfying oh. the, the parental instincts, <laughs> the oh. baby world. Tell us about baby world. <laughs> so uh, it, to satisfy people's desire to have children, they could adopt these uh, mechanized dolls that replace babies. And they're the creepiest things <laughs> I have ever seen. <laughs> so yeah, and this so this is kind of uh, '70s technology, which I guess they're kind of some. They're like animatronic, like those little yeah. animated uh, figures that they used to have at Disney World. Maybe they still do, but you know the presidents and and other famous characters. They would just do this very limited range of motion. Uh, the faces, this very kind of low tech you know, rubber synthesized type of material. So there's eyes that can turn around and a mouth that can kind of move. And the voice is, mummy, mummy. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, yeah, it totally gives you the so willies. <laughs> you just want to pick that little darling up and uh, embrace him for all these words, right? And so and they, they have all of these couples standing in this long, long line for presumably for hours on end to get their turn. <laughs> and, and they're weaving through until they finally get up to the uh, up to the front of the line and then it's their turn to get their baby. And, and they don't even get babies. They get toddlers. They're like three or four years old because the baby dolls uh just fly off the shelves they can't make them fast enough so, so sorry you, you're stuck with a top <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly so that yeah i, I don't know it it it's it just so absurd the, the premises just fall to pieces uh under the slightest of scrutiny yeah <laughs> Oliver Reed is actually very understanding when Geraldine Chaplin gets to the front of the line and decides she doesn't want to go ahead with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when she sees the, the animatronic. Yeah, yeah, as if they've never seen these things before. You know, they've been waiting for hours and she finally gets up to the front and she's she can't go through with it the, the prospect is just too hideous apparently her maternal instinct is so powerful and so profound that she can accept no substitutes you know but i will tell you this too richard man when the, the first shot of oliver reed as he's standing in line there the look on his face is like what in the hell am i doing here yeah. <laughs> and i think that extends to the the film itself as well as the role that he was being asked to play here um he didn't you know. seem terribly invested in this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was, uh, and and you really wonder was just was this just a paycheck? I mean, it seems to me that he still had some kind of star power. I don't really know the the lay of the land, but tell tell me a little bit about where Reed was at, as far as you know. Understand. As far as I can tell, he was kind of at the peak of his career. He was, yeah, he yeah. came straight out of the devils into this. 
movie, it looks right. like. And, the, you know, The Devils, of course, has yeah. its own controversial history and probably didn't get a lot of circulation. But he, he had cachet. Oh, right, right. Well, he, yeah. was, he was a known, you know, powerful character actor who had charisma. Uh, he had a big personality. And he had great acting chops. I mean, he's not just a hunk. He, he really can dig deep and, and give you a very vivid characterization. There's not a whole lot for him to do here. Though, no, so. and I think he went straight from this film into Richard Lester's Three Musketeers movies. So he, you know, alongside yeah. Raquel Welch. So he's okay. Yeah, so fairly in demand. I don't know how he ended up in this one. Right. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's a leading man you know, role here, and and he was it. And then Geraldine Chaplin. I mean, she's the daughter of Charlie Chaplin, right? I mean, that's a pretty illustrious lineage there. And the granddaughter um, yeah. of Eugene O'Neill. Oh, I didn't. Maybe I knew that, but I, that's a, another great little factoid there. So, yeah. you know, and she had been in some art house films. Uh, what was the one? Uh, uh, Peppermint Frappe, I think, was, yeah. was the, the Spanish film from She's like Dr. Six... Zhivago, too. Yeah, right, right. So, you know, again, I mean, that's that's not only lineage, but, you know, she's been in some films with some substance, with, with some merit and all of that. So I don't know if, you know, and it, it, I do wonder, like, what put this production together? The film was primarily yeah. produced in Denmark, which is interesting. Carl Dreyer rolling over in his grave. But go ahead. Yeah. The two producers of this have a long track record in television production. Okay. And, and I, from what I, I read, one thing that uh, one of them, Frank DeFolita, who co-wrote this and produced it, was going to direct it himself originally. Mm-hmm. Like he originally, he eventually did direct some, a couple of features. So I think, or a feature and some TV movies. So I think this was something he was putting together for himself. And I don't know how that ended up with Michael Campus instead. Yeah. But there had to be some money behind this. Like these guys yeah. were, but I think there's like television size budget money behind it. And that's kind of the problem with the film. This looks like a TV movie, you know, because again, yeah, the only real special effects, the only real sci-fi tech elements, I mean, we've talked about a few, there's the animatronic dolls, there's the smog, there's the spaceships or not spaceships, but these little floating orbs and, you know, just kind of this, this set design of this kind of claustrophobic environment where people are just kind of you know, uh, trudging their way through the streets. They're not, they're not really doing anything. There's just kind of this, I don't know, this grind that people are going through, but there doesn't feel like it's even that much of an industrialized society. I don't really know how people spend their time, you know, but they are kind go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the fog plays a huge role here. This or the yeah. smog, I think it's supposed to be, and that yeah, it's, right. it's so thick you can't see anything. So right. I don't think they built any sets for most of this film. Yeah, there's. I guess there are interiors. right. There's there's and there's a few sort of cityscapes, you know, when when those orbs are floating around, but very cheap, very very cheesy looking. Um, but humanity just sort of seems like this big pile of almost like ants on an anthill you know um the the food has been reduced down to this little tubes of brightly colored paste yeah <laughs> pictures of food yeah 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 right and 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 uh, there's a there's a scene that happens to be on my little monitor right now where where uh, russ and what was her name uh, the woman's name russ and carol or something like that um are are sitting at a restaurant and oliver reed is looking at the menu talking about 
beef stroganoff. <laughs> it's just, but but you know, there's there's so so life has been drained of its vitality. Uh, the their jobs are working as kind of actors or models in a museum that replicates life in the 1970s, which is a very convenient way to put them in kind of a contemporary wardrobe as if people are just dying to see what life was like in the 70s. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the, the scenarios or skits that they uh, That's perform? That's one of my favorite things about the movie. And, yeah. and the second time they did it, they actually caught me by surprise. I, yeah. I wasn't, uh, you know, they're doing this whole dinner scene and suddenly cut to the audience. And, and like, oh, uh, that's like I've been, been well. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. Yeah, it did. They have that little surrealist twinge there. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, you know, this is, there's kind of a meta thing going on here. One of the things I, I really did like about this movie is its world building. Okay. Like the museum and, and yeah. a lot of the little details about life, uh, their, their Christmas tree and things like that. I thought it was an, it was an interesting little bit of world building and just connected to a plot that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. There are, there are some ideas in here about uh, the, uh, kind of that appetite for the natural. You know, yeah. uh, Russ wants to have a real Christmas tree. Uh, she wants to have a real baby. And, and it, it is kind of a, a maybe along the line of that silent running when, you yeah. know, the world has been sort of taken away from you. Those, those ordinary natural things that we take for granted now are desperately craved now that they're unattainable, no longer within reach. And I guess that's sort of the, you know, so the moral of the story that the film is trying to get across to its contemporary viewers. You know, this is also yeah. the time when ecology and the environment were starting to become more of a concern. So pollution is kind of another sub theme that's being looked at here. It was like, what do we got to do to, to clean up the place and, and make sure we can breathe fresh air and that plants and animals don't go extinct. Yeah. That, the, there's some pretty scary taxidermy specimens yeah. on display as well. Here's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really look like a cat. Yeah. And you're right. And there was a film that was shown in the museum about people who ate meat and ate animals. So there's almost a sort of a quasi early veganism, vegetarianism thing going on as well. Just can you believe how barbaric people were? They actually ate animals and stuffed their face and their there's kind of piggy soundtrack, you know, effects going on as they're showing people having a picnic. <laughs> it was filmed like like they were in a pornographic theater. Yeah, 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 yeah really, uh, raincoats and, you know, yeah, all yeah. of that. And, and that's the stuff I kind of liked about it. I thought it was an interesting sort of, like, there were some ideas in it about, you know, animals and plants are extinct and how people would live. And uh, the video screens in the in the house and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. People are under surveillance, you know, big brother is watching that kind of thing is pretty heavy. And, and there's a few moments, um, where, you know, they are, um, they, they, well, there's the one scene where, um, he's caught after, after, um, she's talking about having a baby. Um, uh, he starts doing some research on the library oh, about, yes. yeah. And, and, um, and because he's premature explore, birth. yeah, premature birth and, and kind of things having to do with human reproduction, uh, he's caught, you know, uh, kind of, you know, browsing illegal websites, you might say. Mm. And, uh, and then the authorities kind of come in and they do a little interrogation thing. And I'm thinking, you know, this is the same year that Clockwork Orange was released. Now you want to talk about doing a, a nightmarish interrogation scene. Clockwork Orange shows you how it's done. 
this movie had not so much. <laughs> they put Oliver Reed in a chair under a, a kind of a bright red lamp, and he's just like thrashing and twitching because uh, they're asking him these questions and he's giving them the answers and they're not accepting it. And he's just asked to kind of bug out <laughs> in the red light there. And it's like, oh boy, poor guy. That'd be a good point in their response to them. Why is the. Why is the material on premature birth available to ask for? Yeah, yeah if you're not allowed yeah. to watch it, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, you know, again, there's just, you know, I don't know. This is not a movie I think that was ever intended to be subject to the kind of rigid, rigorous critical analysis to which this program specializes. But here we are picking it to pieces. It's offering ideas. Yeah, it is, and. The logic is a little bit <laughs> faulty. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, and 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 they basically. So after you've done the world building, after you've kind of set up, you know, the situation where she's going to go ahead and have a baby, they're going to have to do it on the sly. They're going to have to find ways to avoid detection. And again, if this all-knowing under surveillance society, you'd think they'd have ways of figuring that stuff out. Because if she is found to have a baby, well, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a woman standing out the street saying, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> and then they're going to swoop in with their little uh, uh, suction cup of death and, and, and trap them. But but really, after, after that whole thing is set up, the whole thing becomes about, you know, she's having my baby <laughs> and, yeah. and, and the, and the, uh, the, the power of attraction that this little one uh, exerts over these, these humans who are deprived of, of the sights and the sounds and the smells of an actual human infant. Which is probably they, the strongest part of the movie. It is the emo- most emotionally engaging. Now it's, it's a little bit sappy. If you're looking for sci-fi type of thrills and adventure and kind of, you know, the weirdness of a, of a speculative universe, this takes us down almost into soap opera type of territory because it it feels like early seventies commercials, you know, celebrating the joys of motherhood with that kind of, you know, kind of soundtrack music and, and the kind of, kind of the loving shot of the mother cradling the infant and the father looking on proudly, you know, off to the side there. So yeah, I, it, it's, it's kind of a mixed message, but you're right. I mean, it, it that is the emotional core of the film is, you know, this, this quest or this desire to, to raise an actual child when uh, the authorities are trying to forbid that kind of thing. And it does, I'd say, I was going to make it fun of Reed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he's quite checked in this, but I think Geraldine Chaplin's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, she she seems credible. I mean, she's, you know, she's a young woman. Uh, she's very attractive in this film, and she really does look great. And, and I think she is selling the idea of a woman who's rebelling and, if you will, fighting the power uh, that's, you know, from the limitations that have been imposed on her. Um, and when, when, when she does, you know, conceive, when she does give birth, then I guess that's when we get into the uh, kind of, thrilling conclusion which is the jealousy that erupts between this other couple that has sort of been in on the secret you know they've kind of discovered but but they decide they're going to play it cool and and we're not going to snitch we're not going to tell because that would obviously you know create big problems but the uh, the allure of this child and their own dissatisfaction with the little you know 
animated uh, electronic toddler girl that that uh, they've been stuck with kind of creates the tension that that makes them decide they're going to take the baby for themselves and uh and they try to use some uh, emotional manipulation of, I mean, we're going to turn you in <laughs> if you don't give us the child you know uh, I mean, again it's 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 pretty contrived pretty hokey uh, pretty manufactured uh, dramatic tension to say the least yeah the husband in that other couple is don gordon yes who, yes who michael campus like used in almost every film he made yeah yeah and uh, and yeah he looked to me like a pretty familiar face and so when i went to his filmography oh yeah there's quite a bit of stuff i mean he had a pretty long career and actually had a pretty long life he lived to, all up till 90 so yeah but, but pretty familiar face in a lot of you know 60s and 70s films and up into the 80s or so so um let's talk a little bit about michael campus i i didn't know anything about him by name but i did find out that he went on from here to direct the mac which yeah. is a film i really would love to see i've known the soundtrack for a while uh willie hutch and it's uh kind of interesting I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of the chemical brothers and they released yeah, a mixed cd from the 90s called brothers gonna work it out and the opening track of this uh, cd was the song brothers gonna work it out by willie yeah, hutch yeah. which is kind of what kind of connected me there but the mac is a pretty classic black exploitation flick i i i don't know how to find it i don't think it's even been on the criterion channel even though they've kind of delved deeper into that genre have you seen the mac do you know about that years and years ago it's yeah. one that uh it's one that seems to have like fallen a bit out of the core black exploitation catalog yeah i think it's i think it's got a pretty strong reputation among the aficionados and i really want to see it because it was filmed in oakland and i lived in oakland or not in oakland but I, my dad owned a business in oakland at that time like in 72 73 i lived in the bay area for those years and i would and I, apparently it's like pretty street smart and and got a lot of location footage i would love to just check that out because i used to hang out in oakland quite a bit and uh that would be a, a fun uh sort of memory boost i think and as well as the film itself you know it's it's kind of along the line of that superfly you know the mac i mean that sort of says it right there and he did another one i can't remember the name of but apparently these are two pretty significant uh standard bearers of black exploitation cinema uh, now uh, michael campus was not a black guy himself but apparently he had a you know he had a knack for making those types of films do you know anything more about michael campus yeah just a few like he he seems to have like like the mac was a big success relatively speaking right the second one that the education of sunny larson or something like that yep, that's which is more, which is about, more right. of a, about a a black revolutionary than it is a black exploitation film it's kind of a like a, a biography mm -hmm. wasn't a big film and then he made the passover plot which oh right right another adaptation of a kind of a big speculative bestseller that kind yeah. of stirred up some controversy and all that yeah right, it's right. a story about how jesus faked the crucifixion yeah yeah exactly and, and supposed and research seemed, yeah mm -hmm. that seemed to have finished his career <laughs> <laughs> well that'll get you on a blacklist or two you know yeah. you're kind of crossing some lines with uh, certain members of the audience uh, and all of that yeah there's a huge gap there and like from the seventies to the two thousands when he made the film, that's a biography of the, the, the kitschy painter, Thomas Kincaid. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From the back to Thomas Kincaid. Now that's a yeah. guy who's covered some territory. And yeah. of course the Passover plot in the middle of all of that too. Yeah. 
Well, let's get yeah. Go ahead. So it's it's not a distinguished career, but it's a very strange no. one. <laughs> it really, yeah. But but he seems to have you know been a working director. He got an obituary in the L.A. Times and in Variety. So you know he must have had some kind of you know ongoing showbiz connection. You know, to, to keep getting these types of jobs. But you're right, he's kind of all over the place. But let's go ahead and get back to the movie, even if it's just for the sake of kind of wrapping up our discussion sure. of it. So, you know, the 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 ending of the movie is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he, the, Russ, the, the husband, sort of recognizes that he can only evade detection. They, He and his wife and their baby can only evade detection for so long. And so he sets up this very elaborate scheme so that when... They get busted. He has an escape route planned. And again, another really illogical. <laughs> you know, when, when you're caught with a baby, they put you under this... Uh, uh, suffocation dome. Su- suffocation dome, right. And they think about what you did. Yeah, t- yeah, they give you 12 hours of oxygen before you suffocate so you can feel remorse for your crimes against humanity. The most horrible thing that you could do is have a baby. It's just like, okay. So, you know, rather than just snuff them out and be done with it. And they also, they, they put them out in the street and they kind of, you know, surround them with a crowd of angry people. And then they drop this little dome over them. It's kind of like a big plastic tent and somehow seal it up spray it with red spray spray paint <laughs> like, and, why did they do that yeah, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> to give them the chance to escape i guess well that's exactly it right and so and then and then he's there and so he pulls this little uh pick or whatever out of his boot so he's got all the tools that he needs to to tunnel down into the chamber where he's already set up of an inflatable raft and gone through this kind of subterranean sewer system which is kind of planted of the apes like where it's kind of this this uh, hidden chamber that's uh, the re- relics of the of the doomed former civilization and so there's all these piled up wrecked up cars and all of this hardware and bric-a-brac from uh, earlier times and they kind of do this paddling down the canal through the sewer until suddenly they emerge into the daylight uh, out in this kind of creek now all of a sudden there's no smog the skies are clear and <laughs> it's just plenty of sunshine and everything i guess that they've gone far enough yeah i guess they but it's but you know i mean how long is that sewer gonna go like how many you know miles i mean you know anyways anyway and then all of a sudden now they're out on the ocean <laughs> or a yeah. bay at least a pretty large body of water again just paddling along there, there's no surveillance nobody's out there chasing after them uh, you would think that if uh, you know they've they've removed the dome and found there's a big hole in the dirt, well, they're going to go down there and chase after them, right, uh, and figure out where they go. Well, nothing ever happens until they their little raft washes up on a beach. You see some plaques that say, uh, you know, this is a storage space for Polaris missiles. That was these were buried in 1978 so again they're projecting you know before the end of the decade six years into the future and then they're walking along the beach carrying their baby freeze frame the end (laughs) it's like okay are they walking into a radioactive death trap is this the emergence of life you know in a in a world uh sort of like a logan's run type of thing where they get outside of the the bubble of control and they can you know, start civilization anew, a kind of a 20th, 20th century Adam and Eve, you know, uh, 
exploring and, and uh, relaunching humanity on a new course uh, that inspires some hope. You don't know. <laughs> there's no there's no indication of this is a if they're free or if they're doomed. <laughs> Charitably, I think yeah. they wanted it to be open ended. But sure. But I'm not sure that the open ending has much impact. No, it, it, it really feels like they kind of ran out of time or money or ideas, you know, and so there you go. Even and, his escape plan makes no sense to me. Like yeah. he dug that tunnel in his basement. Yeah. Well, their their apartment must have been pretty close to the zone because there there's like yeah. the suffocation domes are are um placed on certain coordinates so they were able to predict where their yeah. suffocation dome would would put them <laughs> but rather than getting caught going in the dome and digging into his tunnel why didn't he just escape through his tunnel that he dug in his basement <laughs> yeah, right right exactly <laughs> like why he go dug the escape tunnel <laughs> why didn't he just leave <laughs> yeah yeah you're right take the baby and go don't even risk it you know yeah, yeah. it's a very convoluted escape plan that, that, yeah what if they didn't spray paint the dome for some reason? Yeah, yeah. What if they just maintained observation and just made sure? I mean, anyways. So we, the uh, the uh, the film has not stood up underneath our our critical analysis. But uh, what no. can I say? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I had very positive feelings about it because I liked all the world building and I like films like that. But yeah, th- that's a very tentative <laughs> now now you have it on blu-ray right you found a yes, decent yeah. okay now i watched it on a website called daily motion which is you oh, know, yeah. and and it's pretty low cal caliber i mean it's it's very pixely it's probably 240p or something like that mm-hmm. you know and so i would say if you want to watch it online which is how i did um and i did watch it back when i was on the criterion channel but it was kind of a sort of a skim i didn't anticipate that i'd be podcasting about it anytime soon at the time so i just kind of got exposure to it as how i would put it how does the blu-ray look as far as the the transfer and just that kind of thing it's is nice it, it's it's okay. a kino, it's a kino blu-ray right right it's it's really it looks good i, I okay. enjoyed it it's got a commentary that i didn't listen to but that was okay. intrigued that it has who, who does the commentary is it a scholar or uh, somebody uh, who knows their it says stuff? film historian which okay. could mean everything from scholar to someone who likes movies the way yeah. they, they do it nowadays. But sure, sure. Well, but I, I was curious I, enough about. Yeah. I'll listen to it someday because I'm curious enough to see if he has any like stories about the film. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. the The Blu-ray is out of print, so it's fetching a bit of a premium yes. now. I, I did look around, but I wasn't quite ready to invest. That's the problem. Know, I thirty I forty it, bucks. So yeah, I bought it for a price for a high price point. But well, but well I, I, I wanted to own the film. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you yeah, got it. Maybe uh, rip me a copy of that Blu-ray or the, the commentary track someday, and I'll sure, sure, listen. Sure. That would be cool. All right, anything else you want to say before we move on to uh, Hungry Wise? No, I think that pretty much exhausts it. All right, I think we've we've plumbed it. All if right, well, if you like yeah, this kind of science fiction film, I think it might be entertaining. That's what I, I, I definitely think it's entertaining. I think you know, with the with the star power of of Reed and Chaplin, if you like that kind of speculative, what if type of, you know, um, projection into the future, and you don't mind a little bit of cheese and schlock or whatever, uh, you know, th- then I think there's definitely commendable stuff here i i would not have done this episode if i had just been completely bored <laughs> with it so uh but you're right this is this is uh even even the the um the, the michael campus connection makes me intrigued to sort of see 
where he went because I would like to see a few of those other films that you've talked about and uh, analyze uh, his career there. So let's go ahead and switch gears and just shoot right on over to uh, Hungry Wives. Uh, this wasn't this wasn't the immediate follow up to Night of the Living Dead, right? I think he did something like something about vanilla. Yeah, there's always vanilla. He made a romantic comedy between them. Okay, have you seen? Have you? Are you no. pretty versed in these interim films of between when Zom, when Romero was apparently trying to avoid being pigeonholed as a zombie film director? Very much so, except that one because okay. when I when I did go deep into Romero, it was sort of in the days of VHS, and there's always vanilla was completely unavailable. Yeah, yeah. There's it an was, Arrow box set now called what yeah. From Night to Dawn or something like that. Uh, do yeah. you have that by any chance? No, I don't. And, and, okay. and that would I'd, I'd be curious about it because I've always wanted to see There's Always Vanilla, even though I hear it's really not very good. And mm-hmm. even Romero says said it was really not very good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, tell, let's just kind of give our listeners an introduction sure. to George Romero. I've got a few things to say as well, but I think you probably are a little a little bit more deeply versed in his work than I am. So he was he, like he's very much a regional filmmaker. Like he grew up in the like he worked in the Pittsburgh area, and he was involved in like he had his own production company that made like industrial films and commercials and similar stuff, right? And then broke into feature films with Night of the Living Dead, which most people wouldn't know about, right? Yeah. But the interesting thing about him at first was that he didn't really want to be a horror film director. He wanted to be a film director. So after Night of the Living Dead, he tried to make other films that weren't horror films, and they really didn't succeed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is the best of them, I think, because it partly points towards a direction he took after he kind of gave up and decided to make horror films again. Yeah. But um, I think his, his strongest period is the seventies, like between night of the living dead into dawn of the dead and all of the films that he made in that period. Obviously I can't talk about there's always vanilla. I'll have their interesting points about them. And I find this one very interesting, if not completely successful. Yeah. He's definitely exploring he's trying different things out he is i think trying to tap into the zeitgeist and from my personal perspective he does that very effectively so let me give a little bit of my background i I already talked all about how i lived in the bay area in the early 70s well in 1970 uh, my family lived for one year in pittsburgh uh, a little suburb called plum borough and so um i yeah and i i knew early on that you know like night of the living dead was filmed around there and all of that and so this had a vibe to it that that i could really relate to because my parents and our lifestyle kind of fit what i saw on screen the little cocktail parties and the little smutty mad libs and the you know the the kind of um risque humor and the you know the the husbands and uh, you know at work and the wives at home i mean i really felt like wow that that was kind of my childhood i mean i, I was on the kid level here uh, even younger than the the, the the teenager young adult daughter uh of uh jack and his wife um in that were on uh, you know displayed in this film but even the, even the dabbling in like you know witchcraft astrology kind of the occult i mean my mom you know had a little time of exploring that type of thing when things like horoscopes and 
right. uh, the the you know the decor the decorative elements and just the curiosity tarot cards and things like that that was kind of a thing back then and it's like wow as i was watching it that really sort of rang my bell a little bit like yeah i feel like i have lived experience in the world that's being portrayed here and even the you know the um the tensions that exist between sort of the board housewives and their workaholic husbands and the guys who are just kind of out there chasing the dollar and and their you know kind of own ego trips and the wife and family are kind of appendages that they've just got to kind of you know deal with boy that that all really connected with me quite quite effectively i'm not sure how it's going to affect you know connect with the viewers who don't have the same type of you know uh sort of emotional or life experience connection but to me boy this this film really did kind of you know ring my bell a bit i mean it's one of the things he does really well that it's a shame he didn't do more often is he's very good at um painting what a type of life is like i think yeah yeah his strongest film the one i'm suggesting that this one sort of points towards is his strongest film of the 70s is a a more straightforward horror film called martin Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's very much like this because it's largely about painting a world where in this case he paint that one case he paints more of a working class pittsburgh neighborhood Mm -hmm. yeah he introduces a horror element into it but it's possibly not real in okay. that film, the main character, him and his family think he's a vampire. Yeah, but he, but he doesn't seem like he really is, right? Okay, and, so and he's living under this kind of burden of expectations or yeah. suspicion. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, like he he does kill people and drink their blood, but he does it very like surgically, like injects them with drugs and oh, cuts okay. their vein, right? Yeah, and and has these memories that might be fake of himself as a as, as a vampire who lived hundreds of years ago okay and this film and that film strike me as very similar in the way that they you know create a like paint a world that people live in and create a, and you know sort of talk about the problems that are faced by that and enter like a supernatural aspect of it mm-hmm. more as a comment on the way they're these people's problems living in their life than as a horror film yeah, yeah. Well, that to me, that was the strength of this one here. I mean, there are those kind of creepy elements, and and I think the the I, I'm hesitant to call it horror because it's it's yeah. never so much scary as it's just kind of weird, you know. So uh, the weirdness comes through like in dream sequences primarily, especially like right from the beginning, right from the get go, as well as the woman's kind of gradual. Uh, fascination and adoption into this kind of secretive uh, witch's coven and, and her interest in the occult and the ceremonial magic and that kind of thing. And so that's that's kind of where the kind of eeriness comes from here. Uh, and there is kind of, you know, some some sex and violence elements as well. So, you know, there are there are elements there that could be seen as, you know, sort of exploitation or or kind of uh, shock value type of cinema, but it's it's kind of low key in that respect. I don't know. So let let's just get into the story. It, it is sure. about. Uh, so again, I don't have my notes right in front of me. What's the what's the woman's name? Do you have oh, that? I well, do not. All right. Well, maybe we can look that up as we talk. But but basically, it's about a couple. Jack, I know, is the uh, husband. Yeah. And, and and his wife uh, is she's the central figure of the film. Uh, the film was 
shot under the tit- working title of Jack's wife, you know, and that's kind of the last lines of the film as well. Uh, you know, kind of a sort of an, an indirect say, you know, she's kind of in the shadow of her husband. And, and this is a woman who's been kind of, you know, almost dismissed and, and she's, she's looking for a connection. She's looking for a, some kind of vitality in life that, that it's not giving her kind of her ordinary experience. They live a comfortable life, uh, but he's indifferent to her. He's he's actually pretty abusive as the film goes on. Uh, her daughter's growing up. Uh, she's kind of got her own thing going on and doesn't really have much time or interest in her mom. So here's a woman who's just kind of drifting along and um, she becomes aware that there's a new woman who's just moved into the community who actually practices witchcraft. And, and I, you know, she's got this kind of void in her life and she's drawn into this to understand what's going on. Um, the husband goes away on a business trip and that kind of opens her up to do some of this uh, exploration. And that's where some of those slightly supernatural elements come in as she starts having these vivid dreams about being stalked by this character who's wearing this kind of devilish mask and breaking into her house. And in fact, one of the early dream sequences also introduces her to a guy who she sees later on in real life who happens to be a college professor who is sexually involved with her daughter. (laughs) So you've got this kind of twisted stuff going on, although, you know, and it's, it's pointed out as kind of stretching the limits or, uh, you know, poor boundaries but there's also a casualness to how that whole thing goes down that uh, probably would not play quite so well today just uh, given kind of where we're at culturally no but it's very much of the period yeah exactly yeah professors sleeping with their attractive students that's and yeah. students what mothers <laughs> and 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 the mom yeah exactly and and yeah and and just that character's you know very entitled, very chauvinistic, uh, even somewhat misogynist attitudes. Uh, you know, just like deal with it, baby. You know, that's the kind of guy I am. You know, <laughs> it's very yeah. unapologetic. But yeah, so so that's kind of the, the 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 social milieu that's being sketched out for us here. Yeah, I mean, what what are some what are some of the impressions just about how the film tells its story, and what do you think is that was easy trying to get across? You know, it's a compelling film told like a little bit too slowly maybe that's the word i'm trying to come up with like it's a fairly it's 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 not dull it's just very long given how little happens in it right yeah and this is Uh, a this is an edited version this isn't i mean what i saw was the 89 minute version uh, is that the yeah, same? Yeah, no, I saw one? the same yeah. one you did. I All saw right. it on there's, Canopy. Yeah. Right. And there's one that's 104 minutes that's on that yeah. Arrow box set. But the original cut was like 130 minutes, you know, two hours yeah. and 10 minutes. And so there, and I don't think that cut exists anymore. I think, I no, think the footage sure. was lost and, and all of that. And this film did kind of go through some torturous, uh, you know, production problems. So, so it seems like Romero had this idea and he shot a, a rather ambitious two-hour and ten-minute film, um, but even with this film, you, you talked about how this—it's kind of told in a slow manner, and there are there are dead zones in the film where nothing much happens, and it's not really conveyed all that interesting. I mean, it, it feels kind of clumsy the way things kind of flow together, or or don't, and and how we get from one plot point to the next. I, and I'd say 
I generally liked the film, but the third time she had the she was attacked by the man in the house and it turned yeah. out to be a dream again. I yeah. actually I actually yelled at the TV. I was Yeah, like, like you've worn like, this one on, to a nub, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and and it, it's not irrelevant because it introduced the shotgun, but it's yeah. still like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, there, you know, and so it was shot as Jack's wife when it was finally ready. I mean, I guess he did some test screenings. It didn't do very well. So it was back to the drawing board. They did this um, edit. and and But it was titled Hungry Wives, which is, I think, yeah. that was the title that Criterion released it as when it was in a, I think it was, was it in a 70s horror bundle? You know, kind yeah. of like we did the 70s sci-fi. So it wasn't a George Romero bundle, but it was kind of, again, the horror films from that era. But, you know, Hungry Wives um, and the poster that I put on my, on my Facebook page, you said, that's a pretty deceptive poster. Yeah, that's, that's nonsense, <laughs> that poster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the poster is of three pretty attractive women uh with sort of seductive body language it's an illustration though i guess the woman in the center kind of looks like uh, the woman who's the protagonist of this film here but all three women look a lot younger and sexier than any of the women even the the young adult daughter (laughs) that, that we see actually on film and apparently the effort was to promote this as kind of a softcore nudie yeah. drive-in type of movie. Um, but it does not deliver <laughs> on that very successfully. It was, it was picked up by someone with criterion collect connections too. Jack Harris distributed mm-hmm. this The guy behind the blob and Equinox. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. He, so yeah, uh, he's out to make a buck here. Right. Yeah. And they were trying to push this as like a softcore porn mm-hmm. film, which is crazy. Like, I'm I mean, not surprised it didn't do well. I mean, right. nobody, people would have been angry about that. <laughs> there are a couple moments in the film, a couple scenes where they could have gone there, you know. Uh, but I, I don't think Romero wanted to film that type of footage, and I don't think his actors were looking to do that type of movie either, you know. Apparently, Harris did ask him to shoot additional scenes to yeah. sell that way, and he yeah. refused. Yeah, yeah, but that that doesn't stop them from marketing it, anyways. No. But I I have to imagine, you know, for what it's worth, there were probably some very disappointed customers. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like its subsequent selling as a horror film doesn't even seem right. Like right. Like if you go into this expecting a horror film, it's not one. Like no, it's, no. It's, it's it's like a. A social drama, and I think a fairly good one about yeah, yeah. a woman who, you know, trying to figure out who she is, given that yeah. her family doesn't seem to care about her anymore, and her friends barely do. Right, she's kind of entering that middle age slump. You know, she's 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 an attractive woman, but she's you know she's getting up there in years. So, and and the other women around her, their their companionship is just of the most catty, shallow sort you know i mean just gossip and you know just you know backstabbing stuff the the one friend that she has where they're kind of getting drunk and the professor comes in and it makes a real mockery of her and you know just in you know as she's out of the you know, she goes yeah. to use the bathroom and she's just some flapped out old broad you know that's what makes this country so sick and so hateful i mean it's just there there's a lot of contempt being expressed 
towards these women that that professor is quite quite a a pig himself but but that's the thing you you get the sense from the woman's point of view that uh, she's kind of used up yesterday's news and and there's not really much of a purpose for her and not much of a future to look forward to and i think that does tap into this kind of angst that you know was happening i mean that was some of the some of the motives for women's liberation and, and just kind of a sense of where you know what's our purpose where where do we get respect where do we fit in um, how do we make something constructive of our lives now that our child rearing functions have kind of exhausted themselves you know what else is there i i think those are very valid questions and and you know whether you're a man woman married single straight gay whatever you know these are questions that should be considered and, and explored and i think the movie gives an opportunity to at least you know consider that and it doesn't give the answer that films in this period tended to give, which I think is really fascinating about it. Like, what was what was that answer well, that the films tend to give? Yeah. It would tend to on almost any film from this period, I would have expected the call the young college professor guy to be hmm. portrayed. He, he's the young stud. He's like the swinging dude, right? Right. And that part of the answer, yeah, yeah, and part of the answer would be, yeah. you know, sexual awakening through her encounter with him. Yeah. And then she comes into her own. Right. But that's not at all what happens, right? Like, it's true. He's, he's like, Romero sees through him in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because, right, you're right. She has, the, you know, the, first he has a fling with her daughter, and she kind of hears that happening in the next room, and that kind of turns around a little bit. And then she decides she's going to summon him. She's going to, she's going to use these dark arts to have her way. Apparently, her own, you know, personal charm is not enough so she needs to get a little bit of demonic assistance or something like that well whatever so anyways he 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 answers the call he comes over they have that encounter and um but you know i think she realizes there's not really much else there and 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 then she he ends up basically raping her later on and so, you know, the, the hollowness and the, the lack of uh, satisfaction from that whole pursuit is, is revealed at the end of it all as well. Yeah, he's not much better than her husband. He, her husband's problem. Right. The issue is that her husband only cares about himself, and this right. guy only cares about himself. It, it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting film in that, although the film doesn't exactly endorse witchcraft, it kind of leaves it as, you know... Uh, She's doing it, it even I, mean, I think the uh, stronger than that the film suggests that isn't real yeah but it's something for it's something that's hers and and, and the the fact that she joins the coven at the end is I'd suggest a happy ending right that that she's she's find her own identity at least Right, right. Now, she's empowered. She is with women who maybe understand her and have maybe experienced or walked that path. There may be a lesbian thing, you know, sort of a subtext there, but it's not, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, read into it what you will. But you're right. This, these, you know, these are the terms that she's established for herself, especially now that her, you know, spoiler alert, yeah. her husband is no longer part of the picture. And, and, the very final scene of the film is there she is back at the cocktail party, but now she's a single woman. Uh, she's been exonerated, even though she did shoot her husband. It was, you know, plausible mistaken identity. He came home a day early. It was dark at night. She was scared. She thought it was a prowler, but now she's got this single life 
she's empowered. She may even be what you call self-actualized to use some of the jargon of the time. And, uh, and she sort of stands out by amongst these other middle-aged women as somebody who's kind of, you know, um, charting her own destiny she's she's kind of got things back under her control and you're right so that is kind of the you know the the uplift if you will is is she being put out there as a role model or as an icon i mean i don't think the film is is powerful enough to say yeah she's she's got it going on and and that that's a, a that she's an aspirational figure but given the story that's been sort of laid out there that is kind of the takeaway i guess is that she's She's weathered these crises and she's come out a little bit stronger, uh, despite also perhaps being a little bit worse for the wear, just from the, you know, the 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 challenge uh, and and the sadness of it all. I mean, her her family's basically been you know taken away from her, but she's living life on her own terms now. <laughs> Is that about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I I think it's interesting. I I've I've often thought that. Romero's a little bit of a tragic figure in that he had ambitions to do films that, like more than zombie films, right? And, and he yeah, ended yeah, up uh, yeah. pretty much after a, a career that's not quite simply just do zombie films, but he ended up, you know, nobody was, no one was interested. You know, it, it's like a, the, there's yeah. cult audiences for films like Martin and stuff, but largely it's like, eh, do another zombie film, George. Right. He, he got pigeonholed and, you know, I mean, and he is, I guess, regarded as like the forerunner and the master. Obviously, film has gone, in, especially you know, the horror genre, has gone in a lot of different directions, but he is seen as one of the seminal figures of that type of movie making. And so, and I think, you know, he had a, a career where he was celebrated. So he, he definitely felt the love, yeah. you know, but, but it maybe wasn't fulfilling some of the ambitions or aspirations uh, of his younger self uh, when he wanted to make films that covered, you know, a wider spectrum of, of styles and, and themes and all of that. So, yeah, uh, an interesting experiment. And, and uh, again, you know, whether you're a Romero completist or whether you're just, as I am, just a fan of this kind of early 70s era, I, I've already spoken to sort of the the personal uh, validation and, and connection from just sort of seeing that era captured on film. I mean, the wood panel decor, the, the clothing fashions, there's that one dream sequence of the guy who's kind of like a real estate agent yeah. kind of touring her through the house yeah. he's got that funky little belt around his, his suit coat there i just you know if if you're kind of uh, have a fondness for that kind of tacky quirky era of of fashion and and uh, home decor and all of that uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff to to sink your teeth into yeah i think for, for sure a lot of the regional filmmaking from this era it tends to use like real locations of, uh, yeah oh yeah right their right, sets and yeah. it's it's like a the it's it's a deep immersion into the early 70s it's it doesn't look like anything else yeah. on film <laughs> Well, and, and, and one of those sets was an actual home that he had done, I guess, some locations. And one of the reasons he used that particular home is that they had those lamps, those lamps with those kind of 
grinning figures oh, yeah, or like yeah. kind of gnome-like characters. One of the links uh, has has some back, some interesting background on the making of the film. And when he saw those lamps, he says, oh yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> this is just what I'm looking for. So the, the location was cast because of those actual lamps that were somebody's personal possession, not something that he had made for the film. But, but he just said that that captured the vibe and that kind of, you know, the little altar and the little, you know, spells and the runes and all that kind of stuff. Kind uh, of kind of fun, kind of goofy, uh, but also, you know, a, a slice of life uh, from 1972. All right. Well, I think I'm, I'm pretty well ready to wrap up this episode. But Richard, I've had a fun time t- discussing these movies. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about, uh, you know, season? Well, yeah, no, Season of the Witch. I mean, one other thing. Yeah. How did they get that title? Well, they, they eventually got rights to the Donovan song, which I we'll probably use as the outro music on this episode. So do you want to talk a little bit about the afterlife of season of the witch, which I think is how it's uh, labeled on Tubi, which is where I watched it. That's a T U B I. It's a free website and it's a very clear image, much better than what I saw with ZPG on daily motion. Uh, yeah. Maybe just a little bit more to wrap up that film. Sure. He, um, he basically, uh, because it, it was a failure, like on its release as hungry wives, but after, yeah. uh, Dawn of the Dead came out and he was really, really hot. They uh, re-released the film and gave it the title Season of the Witch to imply mm-hmm. that it was more of a horror film. Yeah. And it is about witchcraft. but And the Donovan song, it's like that's some sort of ex- it's like a, sort of a driving around sequence. Yeah. So it's kind of showing some of the, the neighborhoods and the, 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 the local environment uh, with, with a very memorable track. Uh, which I guess was probably a licensing fee that was paid and Donovan was happy to get his paycheck. <laughs> and, uh, and then there we go. And, you know, speaking of Donovan, that was the, that was the previous episode that we talked about. Yeah. Uh, did, the Pied Piper. Notice, yeah. Did you notice the cross episode crossover? Season yeah. GPG yeah. was released theatrically in the U S with Pied Piper. Yeah. We talked about that actually, uh, oh, okay. that the Pied Piper was the opening feature of a yeah. double bill. So Jack to me, was beneath ZPG. I mean, wow. Is there justice in this world? Yeah, I mean, and what a bizarro. Have you seen The Pied Piper? No, I haven't. No, oh yeah. No, no. Well, I, I love Demi, but I've not seen that one. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting take and and uh, on the story. It's got a lot more darkness and heaviness than you would think, maybe from a children's fairy tale. But you know, Demi definitely had his dark themes that he would weave into his more joyful, you know, productions as well. But that's a film of some substance. And then ZPG is such low budget production values I, to, to how that got top billing. I don't know. I, that's beyond me, but anyways, yeah. So pretty fascinating, uh, little, uh, trio of films, uh, none of which again are currently on the Criterion channel, but they, they had their moment in the sun and I'm glad that we've had a chance to talk about all three of them. So yeah, Richard, any final comments before we shut this one down? No, I think that's about it. All right. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, the next one, I think you're going to be on that episode too. We're going to be getting back to the Bruce Lee box set, which is the way of the dragon. And I've already got confirmation from our friend, Michael Wirth, a noted martial arts practitioner, filmmaker, actor. He's going to join us for a, kind of a follow-up episode uh, from our conversations we've had about the big boss and uh, fist of fury. So 
definitely getting into film number three of the Bruce Lee box set next. And uh, Richard, I'm really glad to get you back on that one as we uh, continue the all too brief saga of Bruce Lee's explosion into the international cinematic marketplace. So that'll be the next episode. And also just letting you know, I just did tonight publish a new episode of inside the box with my friend, Trevor Barrett. We talked about the first two films of the world cinema project. Number one, uh, specifically uh, Tuki Buki and Redis, uh, the disc one of that set. And we're going to be talking about, um, uh, let's see, uh, A River Called Titas and Dry Summer. Uh, that'll be the next episode. I'll be recording that in the next few days from now. So try to get this one out there between episodes. And uh, yeah, that's what I've got going on. So Richard, again, thank you for joining me tonight. Been a lot Thanks of fun. Definitely, yeah. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. Hope we didn't spoil it too much, but uh, definitely check them out. And if you got any reactions or thoughts on these films, please let me know what you think. We'll be talking to you soon. Good night and bye-bye.